So it's great to be with you. So I want to continue a little bit where we left off last week. I, get, I hope that was helpful last week when I did that sidebar thing on what is good. So back to 1 Timothy 4, verse 4. Everything God created is good, and included in that is marriage and food. And it's at this point that I want to pick up and do ABC work, because we now live in a culture where marriage between a man and a woman is considered to be evil and bad. And we are to teach people and to give them examples in our marriage so that uh, our, our children and grandchildren will want to live in holy marriage in the way God has given it. So on page four of your sheet, where on page four it says regarding holy marriage and human sexuality. Do you remember when we did our, our brief little study a few months ago? It's been more than a few months because, you know, the pandemic's been forever. Um, but we did this study where I did the comparative study between the ELCA and the Missouri Senate and the Wisconsin Senate. Do you remember that? Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I did, and this bears repeating, is that when a church wants to be relevant, the church falls into apostasy. Thank you so much. Apostasy means falling away, which Paul speaks about in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. That before the last day will come, before Jesus returns in glory, there's going to be th some things that happen. One is, Paul says in 2 Thessalonians, a falling away or an apostasy. And this happens when the church wants to be relevant. You, you can test this out. When, it, when a church wants to be relevant with the culture and the, and the times, then the church falls away from God's word. So anytime a pastor or any church wants to be relevant, watch out. They're going to lead you astray. And uh, so now with regard to marriage, the same thing. If, you, if, if we wanted to be a relevant, cutting-edge congregation, we would stop marrying men and women. And we would marry male-male, female-female, uh, men, dogs, cats, etc. Because that's cutting-edge, and that's not an exaggeration to say that. And it's not just man-man, it would be man-man, woman-woman, boy-girl, boy-girl, that's where it's headed. And that's not an exaggeration either. Do you, have you noticed what's happened in California over the last month? I've mentioned a group, NAMBLA. I, I can't write it, the acronym on the board, but it's NAMBLA. It's the North American Man Love Boy Association. And these are people who want to legalize sexual intimacy between grown-ups and little children. And what happened just recently in California? Yeah, time is served is shortened, and it was actually brought before the state legislature in California that we will not criminalize people who, who have sexual intimacy, adults with children. We're not going to criminalize it anymore. That's cutting edge. That's what it means to be relevant. That's where the churches are going to go in America. That'll be the next step. And if you don't believe me, you just watch. I'm not a prophet. I, I don't even pretend to be a prophet. But I know what scripture says, and I know that scripture says towards the end things are going to get worse. And this is part of what it means things are going to get worse. So again, if you want to be cutting edge, you do what, what they're going to do in California. And the churches, generally speak, are going to follow in this. So what I'm doing now, because we live in such an Alice in Wonderland nation, I have to do ABC work with you folks. Because what I've discovered as a pastor, and the older I get, the less we know our ABCs. And when it comes to marriage, we better learn our ABCs. So, page four. With regard to holy marriage, of course, the United States Supreme Court has given its word on the subject. In its case, Obergefell versus Hodges in 2015, which did what? What did the court decide in 2015? With the woman who just died, and this is her legacy. 
And I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying this to make fun of the woman who just died, Ginsburg. But what I'm, what I'm trying to point out is you don't believe the lies on the media when they talk about the legacy of Ruth, Gator, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I'm here to tell you what her legacy is. What did they decide in 2015? You cannot define marriage in one way, namely male, female. Marriage, marriage can be defined however anybody wants to define it. This is her legacy, which will be the destruction of our country and the family. BLM exists on this entire foundation. Again, don't believe the lies. BLM exists. Go to their website, listen to what they, read what they support. They support gay marriage, gay everything, and the destruction of the nuclear family, which means husband, wife, and children in a way of husband and wife. Okay? So don't believe the lies. So 2015, the Supreme Court unconstitutionally legislated. And I tested, I tested a teacher on this, a social studies teacher, I said, now what would you do if you were President of the United States? This was 2015. What would you do if you were President of the United States? Could you do anything about the Supreme Court ruling? And the teacher said no. And I said, you're wrong. I said, if I was the President of the United States, as a balance and a check to the judicial branch, I would have said in 2015 that this ruling by the Supreme Court is unconstitutional, and I do not expect anyone to enforce it in this country. And if anybody wants to enforce it, I'm going to send federal marshals, and we're going to arrest them because it's unconstitutional. We've come to the point now where the judicial branch is the infallible, unquestionable branch. But I'm side-noting it here, but you need to be aware of these things. So they made their decision in 2015, but the court got it wrong. The court is not the infallible, and it is not irreversible. Do you remember Dred Scott, the Dred Scott case in the 1800s? What did the Dred Scott decision by the Supreme Court say? that Negroes are not citizens of the United States and they cannot be treated as such and they can't vote, can't be set free as slaves, etc. Now, was that reversed? That decision was reversed and rightfully so. Why am I telling you this? Because you now live in a country where certain people will say that when the Supreme Court sets a precedent, the precedent always makes the decision. That's not true. Because if that's true, then we should be in Dred Scott days and Jim Crow laws still to this day based upon what the Supreme Court has done in the past. So just be aware of these things. See, I'm still unleashed, so watch out. <laughs> in addition, now, since the court has violated its vocation on this topic, we as Christians will obey God rather than men. And that's Acts 5. You remember when the apostles were told that they couldn't preach Jesus, they said, we will obey God rather than men. Now, don't misunderstand. Does that mean that we're going to take to the streets and burn businesses and loot and murder? No. But we will simply not obey these unconstitutional decisions. And if we have to suffer and go to jail for them, we will. And we'll, we'll be like the Apostle Paul. We'll sing hymns in prison. And we'll convert the jailers through our singing of hymns. And they'll say, what is that you're singing? Well, would you like to know? Would you like to hear about Jesus? And God will spread the gospel all the more while we're in prison and in jail. Okay? But don't misunderstand. We as Christian citizens can do lawful things. We can vote. We can go to town hall meetings, etc. But we as citizens are not given to do unlawful things. So we're not going to go to the streets and burn down businesses and homes, etc. We're going to do things in a civil, legal way. Now, a few years ago, former President Jimmy Carter, who was a very liberal Southern Baptist Christian, he gave his word on the matter, and that's in footnote one. Look at footnote one. He said, and I quote, I believe Jesus would, namely homosexual marriage. 
I don't have any verse in scripture. And see, right away, that's, that's a clue that he's an idiot. When, any, when anybody makes decisions based on these topics but can't give you the word of God, you know, run. So he says, I can't, I don't have a verse in scripture, but I believe Jesus would approve of gay marriage, but that's just my own personal belief. I think Jesus would encourage any love affair if it was honest and sincere and was not damaging to anyone else. And I don't see that gay marriage damage, damages anyone else. Now, anybody who, who is in soft social science work knows that's simply not true. They know that's not true. That statement is categorically wrong. I could go on and on about that. Let's go back to the sheet. <clears throat> Page five, I believe, is where I need to go, yeah. So he got it wrong, too. But Jimmy Carter doesn't have better words from the Lord. Now, another example of a flat-out God within her on steroids, or a pretend divinity in the way of Genesis 3, or a categorical enemy of God, his word in the church, is the retired Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy. Now, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, if you don't have this memorized, I'm going to beg you, you must memorize this quote. You must have this in your pocket at all times to be able to diagnose what we're dealing with, with regard to marriage or anything in the world. Let me continue to read. In 1992, in the case Planned Parenthood versus Casey, in the majority opinion, Justice Kennedy wrote, and I quote, now if this doesn't send shivers down your spine, nothing will. He said, quote, at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life, end quote. So who's God? You are. You decide. And brothers and sisters, if you run with this presupposition, then you are simply living in a world of raw power. Whoever has the raw power wins. There is no rationality. There's no sitting down and talking among people about these things rationally. It's just now raw power. Because I decide what is true, not only for my life, but also for the universe. The universe. And of course, these, these, this is the legacy that we've been given by these people, these pretend divinities on the Supreme Court. This is why you must pray for these people. You must be aware of what they believe. Now, I, 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 hope, I hope I haven't hurt you with this, but this, this is hard work that needs to be done in the church. Let's continue. Oh, by the way, the quote I gave from Kennedy, you, you can diagnose that as false if you know your Bible. You know that that's the demonic lie of Genesis 3. When the devil told Adam and Eve, you shall be as God, you'll say what's good, and you'll say what's evil. And Adam and Eve did it. And so my, my point is, is that there's nothing new under the sun here, is there? It's the same old Genesis 3 problem where people will call what God says is good evil, and they'll say what God says is evil, they'll say it's good. This is how you diagnose it. So let me continue to read here. Justice Kennedy also applies this fundamental right to the meaning of marriage. After all, he wrote the Antichrist and Antichristian majority opinion in the aforementioned Obergefell versus Hodges, that in my opinion, that will most likely lead to the criminalization of the faithful biblical teaching regarding marriage and perhaps the abrogation of Amendment 1 of the Bill of Rights for Faithful Christians in the United States in the near future. And I hope I'm wrong there, but I wouldn't be surprised. Now, to observe what happens in the church when she wants to be relevant, 
Look at Appendix 2 on the sheet that I've given you. What page is that, Appendix 2? It's towards the very end. 45. Page 45. This is what happens when a church wants to be relevant. Page 45. So what you have there is a real historical account of what happened recently in the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America in which a woman was ordained with drag queen nuns, etc., present. Now I'm going to read this story for you at the below the picture. In what has to be the strangest title for a post we've ever written, we wanted to bring you this story in case you've ever wondered how different the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America has become. And I'm exposing you to this as well because some of you have relatives and friends that are members of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. They probably don't know what's going on. In any event, it's the tale of the ordination of Pastrix Don Bennett into the ELCA and the celebration surrounding that most cursed of days. Now these aren't my words, this is, the, this is the report that was written by someone. This was a special day for her, as one might imagine. There were all sorts of pomp and pageantry on display, and what will probably go down is one of the most unique services ever. On one side of the sanctuary, a black choir belted out gospel tunes. On another, 10 drag queens dressed as nuns, the sisters of perpetual indulgence, sat and cheered. These performers are an LGBT protest group that uses religious imagery to call attention to sexual intolerance and satire, satirizes issues of gender and morality. The lecterns, those who read the scripture for everyone, were comprised of a pagan Wiccan priest who loves Jesus, an agnostic best friend and a gay pastor. While they took communion, Jennifer Knapp, yes that one, sung some of her old stuff over them. Communion occurred while wearing her rainbow-colored sneakers, holy shoes that she wears only while she preaches to remind herself, blah, blah, blah. And I, I, wanted, to, I wanted to show this to you, and I don't, I'm not doing this, I don't do this to, I'm, this, it brings me no joy, no joy at all. I hope you're not misunderstanding this. This, this brings us great, uh, great sadness in the church. And I wanted you to be aware of what's happening when a church wants to be relevant and when you no longer will live according to God's word regarding marriage, etc. This is where you will go. And now I think you can begin to understand why, I'm speaking in general to make my point, is that people who will teach God's word on this topic simply will not be tolerated anymore. And I'm going to illustrate it this way. When political discourse, when political discourse shifts to religious discourse, you then, you then understand that politics has become religion. Let me illustrate. When someone says that certain people who believe a certain way politically are irredeemable, that has shifted the talk from political talk to religious talk. Irredeemable talk is religious talk. And there's only one thing you can do with irredeemable people. What is that? They're irredeemable. So what, what do you have to do with them? If you have to get rid of them. That's the only option you have. In other words, you can't talk to them. You can't reason with them or convert them to your point of view. They're irredeemable, which in the church, that language is what? They have to be excommunicated. They have to be eliminated. And see, this is, this is where I, I, I want to also say one other thing about this. Is you can always diagnose when things go wrong 
when politics becomes salvational. Politics is not salvational. Politics is only for this life. Okay. So I'll never forget the conversation I had with one of our uh, state senators who's no longer a state senator because he committed an immorality. And I, I told him, I said, you know, your problem is the same problem as your political enemies. You make the same mistake. What was his name? You remember his name? Bill Kittner, yes. I told Bill, I said, Bill, you make the same mistake as your political opponents. And he goes, what's that? I said, you believe that politics is salvational. I said, that's all your mistake. All you guys make the same mistake. And I was right, because he was, he was doing politics because it was salvational for him. Now, do you have any questions about what I've showed you here? Now, again, I, I go ahead, Kara. It's more of a statement, because I'm kind of going through battle as it works right now. Yeah. Um, there's a robbery suspect who a detective wrote an arrest affidavit, and in that arrest affidavit, he put in quotes the word cross-dresser, and that was given to us by a witness during a witness interview, who that witness was also, who was actually a transgender, and described the suspect as being cross-dresser. So we put that in affidavit. This past Friday, we had to have a meeting with the LGBTQ, whatever. Community. Um, and yeah. because they're very offended by the word cross-dresser. And so as a result of all this, we have an eight-page training bulletin that's been distributed to the department. And in that are words that are defined like closeted, coming out, gender, queer, all these words that I have no idea. So it, it's frustrating. So. Well, I want to make sure that there's no misunderstanding today on what I've done here. Uh, these people, whether it's these people here, we want to call them to repentance and we want them to use Jesus properly. In what way? For the forgiveness of sins. I'm going to say that again. I'm not doing this to say I'm better than they are because I'm not. I'm not saying this because, you know, I think I'm the best and, and they're not. Because I'm, I'm, I'm like Paul. I'm the chief of sinners. But, but what we want to do with these folks is we want to call them to repentance and say, now what you're doing is not God-pleasing. Now would you like to receive the Lord's forgiveness for this? Would you? Now the issue is, of course, they say no. And they give you two middle fingers, generally speaking. Now, see, that's the ultimate problem. The ultimate problem is not this. The ultimate problem is when you, when you will not let Jesus forgive you your sin. That is the ultimate problem. I hope that makes sense. So we, we, this, this is done because they, they consider it not to be sin, and so therefore it never needs to be forgiven. And therefore, they have, they have divorced Jesus, the Savior of sinners, from this sin. See, that's the ultimate problem. I hope that makes sense. Robin, did you have your hand up? Well, I, was, I didn't know what a couple words meant, so I had to look them up. Like a Wiccan? A Wiccan is a pagan, pagan it's witch. It's witchcraft. Witch. It's witch, yes. So a pagan Wiccan priest who loves Jesus, how can that even be possible? Well, see, this, this is, again, this is when a church wants to be relevant, then you, you automatically then deny that there's only one way to God, namely through Jesus Christ. So since there's, there's many ways to God, that would include witches, warlocks, unbelievers, etc. They're all going to the same place, doesn't matter what you believe. And so they celebrate this. And I think, I think now you begin to understand why, why we make these people very nervous, because we say, no, there's only one Savior, and it's Jesus Christ. There's only salvation in him and him only. And so if you're a wicked, you're not saved. You're going to go to hell. And then as a pastrix, a female pastrix? Yeah, pastrix would be the Latin, the female 
ending for a female a pastor, yes, yes. Again, this gives me no joy. But I wanted to make you aware of this because if you don't learn your ABCs, if you don't know God's word about marriage, test me out on this. If you're dealing with somebody who has married, who is a woman and has married her wife, and you ask the woman who is now married her wife, and you say, now, obviously, you're a Christian. Now, how does, the, how, does this, uh, how does this square with your Christianity? Or in other words, how does this square with the Word of God? And generally speaking, the answer will be, well, I didn't look in God's Word for any answers. And why not? How I feel. Well, exactly, because God's Word will contradict how you, you feel. And this brings up another important point, and I hope this is... I hope this is uh, Hope this was helpful for you. Remember a long time ago when I did a, a brief flyby study of the, of the history of the church after the Reformation in the 1500s? So in the late 1500s, you had these, these German Lutheran pastors who went off the rails. And they said that what determines truth, did you hear what I always said? What determines truth is not the word of God, but how you feel. The German is gefühlt. Now, and so, nothing new under the sun here. So, you always have to ask people, are you deciding this because of how it makes you feel? Or is it based upon something that is God-pleasing in his word? And usually the answer is, it's, I, I feel differently and I like how I feel here. And then that trumps everything. Now, you need to be able to diagnose that and help these people and say, feelings don't determine the truth. You may feel good, but that doesn't determine the truth. And so I, I could play devil's advocate here, just for the sake of the discussion. I could say to someone, well, you know, it makes me, now again, this is just simply for the sake of the discussion to make this point. That if I told someone, it makes me feel good to have sexual intimacy with a little boy who's five years old, how can you contradict that if everything's based upon how I, and that's where they're headed in California. So back to the ABCs, page six of your sheet. As faithful Christians, you know, we're going to let the Lord have his say when it comes to marriage or any topic for that matter. We're going to let the Lord have the say so and confidently trust that he will bless us through his word. So what's going to define marriage for Christians? It's going to be God's word. So you have Genesis 1. Genesis 1 verses 26 to 28 where he made them male and female. So what I have there in the note is that God creates two sexes, male and female. And I have to say this. This is the ABC stuff that has to be said. He didn't make male, male. He didn't make female, female. And to be quite frank about it, a man's body parts and a woman's body parts fit together so that they can have children. This is how God made us so that God can continue to create life in this world. So he made them male and female. And in verse 28, be fruitful, increase in number. That's to have kids. In other words, it's only within the relationship between male and female that children come about. God's cre God creates creatures through his creatures, but only through a male and female. Now, of course, some of you may be saying, yeah, the pastor, you know, you could have a, a lesbian couple and they could use sperm from another man and impregnate my partner. But you see, that's, that's done, that's, that's adulterated everything even more. Well, I could even use this example. Let's assume that you have a heterosexual couple that can't have children. 
They've tried and tried and tried. And then they bring another man's sperm into the marriage so that she can get pregnant. Most people think that's fine. It's not. That adulterates the marriage. Because that's not the husband's sperm. How do you realize that? You're ready to run me out of town now. But that's, that's an example of how if, the, if you want to be relevant, then you have to cave into all this kind of stuff. Right? Genesis 2, you have the mandate institution of marriage where God actually takes, he creates a woman from Adam's side, remember? And he put Adam into a deep sleep, and from his side he made Eve. He brought Eve to her, and Adam said, At last, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And what's interesting is, I'm doing this from my memory, but in Genesis 2, after God marries Adam and Eve, then God gives his divine comment. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Now in the context of Genesis 1 and 2 is the context of God's very good of creation. Remember last week? And it was good, and it was good, and it was good. And after he created everything, including marriage, it was very good. So the male-female marriage relationship is the very good of God's creation. So when you married Lene, this was part of God's very good will. When you two got married, this was part of God's very good, it goes all the way back to creation. Does this make sense? Any questions about this? All right, now what I want to do next is, Genesis 2, after Adam and Eve are married, God's comment, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Take your Bibles and now go to Matthew 19. Matthew 19 in your Bibles. Because this verse gets quoted. Genesis 2 gets quoted by guess who? Who do you think? Jesus himself. Now Jesus gets confronted with loopholers. <laughs> These are the people. They're loopholers. They're always looking for loopholes and everything. And they bring up the issue of divorce. Now for our topic, I want to just focus on marriage here. But look at verse, uh, verse uh, 3. Matthew 19, 3. Some Pharisees came to Jesus to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read? In other words, haven't you read your Bible? That in the beginning, the Creator made them male and female. He quotes Genesis 1. Then verse 5, and Jesus says, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two become one flesh. And I quote Genesis 2. And then Jesus gives his own commentary when he says they are no longer two but one. And what God has joined together, let man not separate. The point is, is that what God institutes in the beginning, Jesus reaffirms. Secondly, Jesus is the redeemer of sinful humanity, which includes marriage. Jesus has redeemed marriage. Do you realize this, brothers and sisters? That part of living as a Christian means living a redeemed life in the estate of marriage, if you're married. He's redeemed marriage. And how is marriage redeemed? Living in a marriage between a husband and a wife, and that's how you have a family. As it was in the beginning before the fall into sin. Any questions about that? 
So is it God's will for a man to leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and become one flesh with her? Is it God's will? Yes, it is. And I guess I have to do this too. Uh, if any of you are, uh, I don't know if this happened to any of you when you sent out your wedding invitations. I hope not, but sometimes it happens that in the wedding invitations, it's come to the wedding ceremony of so-and-so at such and such a church at such and such a time when we will witness the one flesh union of such and such. Oh, I hope not. <laughs> Because the one flesh union takes place where? Not the wedding service. It takes place where? In the sheets. In the honeymoon bed. So I always teach the young, the young kids in catechesis, and I'm going to do with you folks too. Now, I'm not doing this to poke fingers at people or anything like this, but it's simply to tell the truth. And where we've sinned, we repent and receive the Lord's forgiveness, and we need to teach and do better. That marriage is designed for a man and a woman, and sexual intimacy is designed for a man and a woman only after they are married. Remember Genesis 2, verse 25, Adam and Eve were both naked and they were not ashamed. Why weren't they ashamed? Because they were married. They could be naked together and not be ashamed because they were married. So we need to teach our young people, yeah, sexual intimacy is a wonderful gift from the Lord, but use it only after you get married. This is what's God-pleasing. I told you I have to do the ABCs. I have to do the ABCs. Any questions about this? Yes? So, uh, what are these people, the gays, I guess, are they rewriting the Bible? As far as, uh, say, Adam and Eve, is it Eve and Eve and Adam and Adam? Yeah, the question is, are they rewriting the Bible? The answer is no, they just ignore it. Okay. They just they don't consider it to be authoritative. And we're back to the Genesis 3 problem. I mean, it doesn't matter who you're dealing with, what kind of, whether it's me, you, anybody else. Our problem is, is that we think we always have better words than the Lord. And that's their problem, that's my problem. So pretend, let's pretend that you're dealing with me, Butch, as an elder at Trinity, and I haven't been to church in five years. And you come visit me, and you sit down with me, and you say, I haven't been to church in five years, Brent, what's going on? And I preach a sermon. I'll preach. People do this all the time, they preach. And their word always contradicts God's word, which is remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy and eat and drink my body and blood. Their sermon always contradicts the word of God. They think they have better words than the Lord. Name the sinner, that's everybody's problem, mine too. <laughs> I hope that's helpful. <laughs> Good grief. Uh, yes? Some of what's frustrating to me with this is when someone wants to do an argument with them, they pull out random Bible verses to support their argument. Yeah, do you have anything in mind in particular? Anything no, calling to mind? Too like, many. So like you should love everyone. Yeah, yeah. That's one of the ones they always yeah. say. Excellent. Says you should love everyone. Excellent. That's a great point. So, are we to love everyone? Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then you have to you have to also look at the other word of God that says, "Here's love, man, woman only in marriage. That's true love in marriage." That's part of what it means to love. And also to, to love also means to tell people when they're wrong. I will never forget my friend, who's an old man now, John Kleinig, the pastor from Australia. I will never forget him in front of a, a, a meeting like this, teaching on God's word. Somebody made a comment. And I was, I was, in, I was sitting at a table. And somebody made a comment to, to Pastor Kleinig. 
And Pastor Kleinig, in his delightful Australian way, said, you're wrong. I was shocked. Because we're never supposed to do that. Yeah, if you love people, you'll tell them. If they're wrong, you tell them they're wrong, out of love. Love, love does not give you the excuse to sin. Remember, Paul deals with this in Romans 6. Shall we go on sinning so that grace may abound? Do you love to sin? Yeah, and you know that God loves to forgive sin, so now what do you do? I'm going to keep on sinning so that God will forgive. No, that's a misuse. And same way with the love issue. To love means to tell the truth. Not to excuse sin. Anything else? Okay, so we have Matthew 19. Now go to Ephesians 5. Guess who's going to quote Genesis 2? Paul. Ephesians 5. Now, I, I mentioned this passage last week, but for the sake of time, look at verse 31. Ephesians 5.31, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So Genesis 2 gets quoted by Jesus, and it gets quoted by Paul. Categorically, then, marriage is God-pleasing when it's only man and a woman. And it's only in that sexual intimacy is it God-pleasing. That's the categorical teaching of the Bible. Any questions about that? Look at page six, then, of your sheet. Where it says it's not good for the man to be alone. And so God says, I'm going to make a helper suitable for him. Is the helper another man? No. What is good is that God will give Eve to Adam in holy marriage to be his helper. Next paragraph. In Genesis 2, you remember, God created all the animals before Adam, and Adam gave them names. Do you remember that? All the animals had a mate, but Adam didn't. And so for Adam, no suitable helper was found among the animals. So the Lord follows through with his promise. He makes or builds a woman, Eve, from Adam's side, brings her to him, and they are married in verses 21 to 23. So page 7, the Lord institutes holy marriage in the very good of the beginning's creation. What's very good and God-pleasing is that a man and a woman are married. That's it. No other way. Since God instituted and mandated holy marriage in this way, he gives his own telling remark, which I've quoted over and over this morning. Okay, next paragraph. I repeat, they're naked and they're not ashamed because they are married. It's no wonder then, I'm towards the bottom of that paragraph, no wonder then that King Solomon wrote in Proverbs 18, he who finds a wife finds a good thing, and obtains favor from the Lord. Now, the mandate and institution passages regarding holy marriage in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 are definitive and authoritative for Jesus and the apostles, as we just read in Matthew 19 and in Ephesians 5. What I want to do next is go to page 9. Now again, I want to repeat so there's no misunderstanding here. What I did to you day, today with the ELCA ordination service, that gal, I, again, I, we take no joy in this. We're not doing this to say we're better than these people are, because we're not. We're not any better. We're just as big as sinners as they are. 
But the issue is, is when people will not be called to repentance and will purposely say that their sexual sin is not a sin that needs to be forgiven from Jesus. I'm going to repeat this. All sin Jesus died for, including sexual sin. But if you want to exclude sexual sin from our Lord's forgiveness, you're in deep, deep trouble. See, that's my ultimate point here, to help you learn this stuff. Now page 9, a little more regarding marriage and human sexuality. We've observed from Genesis 1 and 2, Ephesians 5 and Matthew 19, what is good and God-pleasing. Holy marriage is divinely instituted to be between a man and a woman because it is a picture or reflection of another fact, the marriage between Christ, the bridegroom, and his bride, the church. And sexual intercourse is to be enjoyed only within the estate of holy marriage. Within this one flesh union between the man and the woman is the Lord's blessing to have children. There's absolutely nothing shameful in what God has mandated and instituted. Any other thoughts, words, or deeds that is contrary to this very good from the beginning estate adulterates holy marriage. It's shameful and contradicts God's will and word. So Jesus and the apostles quote these texts from Genesis as divinely authoritative and prescriptive for life and practice. We've also observed from Genesis 1 and 2 that as Adam and Eve lived by faith in God and his word, as well as in love toward each other and creation, within their proper God-given vocations, namely male, female, husband, wife, father, mother, etc., they lived as creatures. In other words, they lived as the human beings that God intended them to be. In this twofold shape of living, faith and love, Adam and Eve were content to be creatures that is to say, human beings. They were totally passive and receptive to God's being for them as God through his word and in his creation. They were also very active in love as they lived outside of themselves or sacrificially for the well-being of each other and for all creation. Now, of course, sadly, Adam and Eve were not content to be creatures that lived by faith in God and his word and in love for others. They believed the satanic lie that God could not be trusted to be God for them, that God was a liar, and that they could be like God. Imagine that. Creatures believing that they can be God. Creatures having the desire to be divine. This is the height of idolatry. This is the original sin that Adam has passed down to all, and all sin flows from that original sin. Paul says, just as sin came into the world through one man, namely Adam, and death through sin, and so death has spread to all men because all sin. So homosexual desires, feelings, acts, and same-sex marriage are just two examples of how the desire to be like God and not to live as human beings is exhibited in our lives and the world. St. Paul clearly teaches that homosexuality is the corruption of God's very good created order. That's Romans 1. Although it should be a no-brainer to us, it needs to be taught over and over again that the male body is not designed to copulate with another male body. The female body is not designed to copulate with another female body. The fact that people crave such relationship proves that something has gone terribly wrong with creation and creatures. Again in Romans 1, the Apostle Paul categorically and authoritatively declares that homosexual behavior flows from idolatry and a corrupt understanding of God's created order in Genesis 1. Let me read this. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. 
For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of the bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Let me make a side remark so that you understand that I, my, where I'm coming from once again. My uncle recently died, my uncle Steve. He was gay. So I know, I know what I speak, okay? Every family's been affected by this stuff. He died recently. You know what my biggest fear was for Steve? Not that he was gay. My biggest fear was that Steve withheld his sexual sin outside of Christ's forgiveness. That's what I feared the most for my uncle Steve. And I regret that I never had the opportunity to ask him that question. So I wanted to tell you that story so that it kind of puts a personal thing to this. That I'm not, not, you know, I'm not just some, you know what I'm trying to say? Uh, okay, that's helpful. Do you have any questions about this? Well, I think it's time to quit. I hope this was edifying for you. Now I'm going to continue with... Uh, with more from First Timothy than the next week when we, when we continue this. Let's pray the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name.